Kick the Jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the Jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. Kyle, are, are, are you okay over there? It sounds... Yes. It sounds like you might be constipated. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I... Um, Are you in intestinal distress? Yeah, usually I poop right before um, the podcast, but, you know, this time it just... I'm all gunked up today. Well, you know, we've all been eating comfort foods. That's well, true. We should all be having more fiber, more green leafy vegetables. You know, today I have been eating really well, actually, during... Good. Um, uh, quarantine, but funny you should say today I, I let myself go a little bit. What do uh, you have? have? What's 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 letting go when it's Kyle Gordon? <laughs> I had a, a bagel for breakfast. Yes, and I had uh, I ordered uh, delivery. I got some uh, Mediterranean food. I had like falafel and hummus and stuff. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. it was good. Well, I had pita and tzatziki for lunch, so we're in a really similar place there. We're cousins. Yeah. Yeah. We we are we are. <laughs> Uh, um lunch cousins yeah yeah i made um a vegan mac and cheese yesterday Ooh, that the sauce was made out of avocados and nutritional yeast and basil and cilantro nice uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff so the sauce was green so it was a green vegan mac and cheese Ooh, interesting. yeah it's I've like decided... the fun ketchup from like 2001 when they made totally. it purple yes the purple ketchup when they thought the kids would just love to have ketchup that was purple. Hey, and you know what? I made my parents buy that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Did you? Was it only the purple ketchup, or was there like other colors? Was there green and? There like, was green. It was green and purple. Was there yellow so that you could no. trick, trick your friends and <laughs> make them think it was mustard? Because boy, that would be a piss off. <laughs> that would be a real goof. But uh, <laughs> I think it was just. I only remember green and purple. But I. But you know, I was there for the golden age of. Um, you know, colored ketchups. So. Yeah. Yeah. One of my friends that has kids, uh, he is serving his kids mac and cheese with different food colorings right now. So mm. it's like blue mac and cheese and green mac and cheese. Nice. What a treat. Maybe we should start doing that as well. You know, give our food a little joie de vivre to that. Absolutely. Those weekly meals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone start putting uh, food coloring in your food to yes. give your life purpose. Yes. <laughs> My life now has purpose. My mac and cheese is, is, is red. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, any music you've been listening to this week to be getting you through? Yes, indeed. These, these times. Yeah. As a, um, you know, I think I mentioned it on a past episode, but the theme, especially as we've been much better about doing these podcasts weekly, what I uh, had more time for whatever reason. Yes. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Uh, whatever the the episode prior always influences what I listened to that week. Sure. So I, you know, last week we did uh, an episode about John Martin, who's one of my favorite. We did. Um, artists, and he's a great, great, you know, kind of British folky guy, guitar player. So I started listening to more um, kind of just like British folk um, and then just got into like more like guitar based, uh, acoustic guitar based, like seventies folky stuff. Well, that and, sounds lovely. Yeah. And, and usually when I'm like doing work or reading, I'll listen to some like jazz in the background, which I think you've given me shit for in the past. No, <laughs> but... <laughs> no. I, when I make jokes about jazz, that's like a real like crappy comedy side of me coming out like no, i actually like jazz i like no, jazz it's good it's good but I, I think that it's very funny to like hate jazz and think that jazz is stupid very true very true <laughs> thank you um but i i then wanted to listen to you know find i've all i'm always looking for other things to like listen to in the background that isn't too distracting so um, I've been listening to um, this guitar player named John Fahey, cool. who was around in the 60s and 70s. Pretty much just him and his acoustic guitar. It's totally instrumental, uh, particularly this album, America, from 1971. Uh -huh. And it's really nice, just kind of bluesy, folky 
guitar that's great to listen to when you're just want to zone out, I guess, or you're doing something else. Mm -hmm, When you're concentrating on other things. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That sounds great. (laughs) I've been sitting on a whole story I want to tell you. Yeah, you meant, yeah. Okay. So (laughs) give it to me. Give it to me. So this week uh, was the annual Joey Ramone birthday bash which we have attended in the past. Yes, I... Um, you didn't yeah, watch it, right? I know, I... I That's I, okay, I this up. isn't me trying to guilt you into the fact <laughs> you didn't watch the online version of the Joey <laughs> Ramone birthday bash. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was gonna text you during it, and then I was like, no, I just want to talk about it on the podcast instead. Perfect. Because Richie Ramone was on. Who we met. Yes, who we met. So Richie Ramone is actually really important to the history of this podcast because he wrote the song, Somebody Put Something in My Drink. Yes, Which has the line in it, kick the jukebox, which is what we named our podcast after. Very true. Which which was a a wonderful thing because we both have a deep love for the Ramones. Yes, indeed. So (laughs) he did this like country and Western cover of... Somebody put something in my drink mixed wow. with Howlin' at the Moon. And uh, I gotta say, not the best thing that I've ever heard <laughs> from him. <laughs> uh, it was a real moment of being like, well, this is a, something that you attempted. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Which was several of the stuff of the songs that were uh, performed for the Joy Ramone. But it was really nice. The Joy Ramone <laughs> thing was great. It was really nice. It was nice to see all of them. I always like going to that event because it's always like, you know, uh, Mikey Lee who runs it. Mickey Lee, sorry, who runs it, who's Joey Ramone's brother. And Monty Melnick, who's the Ramones, is uh, um, roadie that was, he's like their roadie emeterius for their entire time. And it's mm-hmm. always like the same people, Tish and Snooky. Uh, like all these sort of old school, you know, 1970s New York punk scene people who I mm-hmm. have this great affinity for. And then there's always some Ramones that show up as well. You know, extended Ramones family members, I should say, because the Ramones are dead. <laughs> they are all dead. But yeah, but Richie Ramone sang this weird, like hybrid Howlin' at the Moon, somebody put something in my drink, country and Western cover, where he did not sing the kick the jukebox verse because it was this hybrid so he sang like the first verse from somebody put something in my drink and then he sang a little bit of the howling at the moon chorus they went back to somebody put something in my drink and it was him like i think he lives on a farm now uh, which is also a thing i feel like it's just worth noting on this podcast that I, I love because it was him like hanging out with his chickens and really yeah and I begrudge him nothing I I love him uh, yeah to bits. but it's so funny this guy hearing him in his heavy Queens accent being like yeah we all really miss Joey you know like <laughs> we've done enough Ramones impressions on this podcast and on <laughs> others uh, to fill a book but um but like this like funny queens like rough guy singing a country and western cover of one of the songs he's written like to his chickens in honor <laughs> of joy ramon's birthday the whole thing was just like this is where we are at now this is where we are at societally this is where we are at in in sort of the realm of of uh us being inside now for nine months so I feel like it was important to share with you. And that whole happening was just perfect for our podcast. I mean, it's just like, it doesn't get better than that. I know. It felt like it's like meant for It for was for to, you, yeah. To discuss. <laughs> yeah, it was like, here's the thing. <laughs> yep, that's incredible. So we're going to talk today about uh, the album uh, Get the Knack by The Knack. Before we do that, you know, that's our deep dive. I actually want to give a shout out to, we got a, a nice compliment on Instagram from a new listener. Ooh. Username Breaks for Rainbows. Hey, uh, hey Breaks, Breaks for Rainbow. Yeah, so thank you so much. They listened to the X episode and really Ooh, enjoyed cool. it. We also got 
several people writing in about enthusiasm for our John Martin episode as well via Twitter. Some John Martin thank you, cover, thank you, thank you. cover bands, uh, oh, which is great. wow. John Martin cover bands. I know. A thing Hell for yeah. you, Kyle. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So that's nice. And uh, we really appreciate it. And, you know, if you want to talk to us about any of our episodes, you know, our, our comments are always open and, and uh, we're more than happy to share our enthusiasm for this music with you. Yeah, baby. Yeah, so <laughs> this album is from 1979. Uh, and one of the reasons why I wanted to cover it is because I think it's just a stellar example of, of what power pop can be when it's good and smart and concise. True. But it's a, this, is a, this album has like a very weird, contentious history. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I, I, I mentioned uh, this might be our most, co- the most contentious album that we've covered, I think. Yeah, which is so funny, but I, I feel like there's a real love or hate for this record. And right. me, uh, you know, I started listening to it in the early 2000s because a friend of mine, Colin Beckett, recommended it to me because mm-hmm. he thought I would really like it, and I do. And I, I wasn't aware of its history and just knew it was a really, you know, well-selling, big hit record. And, like, the flack against this album, which is a very good album, which we will get into. I agree. I 100% agree. It's It's so, very good. It's a very good, yeah. It's very and I good. think it's great for the, the power pop genre, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Totally, yeah. And, and we'll get into, like, the drama, because the drama in this case, I think, is all over the map and is very weird. <laughs> And I think it comes from a place where it's not really about the music. It's it's drama in the purest sense of drama. Yeah, totally. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Although, yes, yes. Although they a were, lot of it, a lot. They of were it. accused of being derivative, and I actually think they are very derivative. But I think they're derivative of other bands that are not the Beatles, which was the big complaint about this yes. album is that they were Beatles ripoffs, right? Which I do not think that they are. But so I think there's a fine line between derivative and inspired by, and I don't think they cross the line into derivative. I really don't. I think you listen to this album and you hear their influences, but you're also like, yeah, this is 1979. Like, this I is- agree. I, I agree specifically with this record. I think that this record is written with a really singular point of vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it veers into almost being a concept album, which I mm-hmm. think is kind of interesting. For Thematically, sure. at least it is. Yep. And it definitely sounds like the, it's, for lack of a better term, it sounds like the knack being the knack. There's Mm -hmm. other albums of theirs. I'm not the biggest fan of theirs other than this album, although they do have some other good material, but specifically their second album, I think is far more derivative of other bands. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, I was just listening to it today and I haven't listened to it in a long time. And there's like, a major like Phil Spector be my baby ripoff yeah. on it. There's a Pleasant Valley Sunday ripoff. It's like really mm-hmm. clear as well. Mm-hmm. I think that album, this album though, I think is sort of everything that it needs to be and is so specific. And yeah. you hadn't listened to it before this week, right? Uh, Not this the is whole new thing. Week. No, I had yeah. heard, I probably had, o- I had only heard my Sharona and good girls don't. Okay, cool. Uh, so what's your, what's your thoughts on this after hearing it all the way through? So it's really interesting. I really liked it. And I was yeah. skeptical, I think, going sure. into it. Um, and I think also... But I have think, I ever steered you wrong? Just... No, no, no. <laughs> I, that's, why I, that's why I gave in. I trusted your taste 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, I, but I think, I mean, my skepticism, I think, was predated this uh, podcast are you telling me about it mm-hmm. because there's nothing i love more really than being told that a one quote-unquote one-hit wonder is actually this amazing band that yes. you, you, you know you have to listen to the rest of their catalog we've we've talked about this before so the, in and of itself that idea is really exciting to me but i think i just absorbed maybe some of this like ambient criticism of the knack and i don't think i could have pointed to any particular but i just think it was in the air somehow that the knack suck i I don't know it was like you know i had until you told like when you suggested i was like oh yeah that this will probably be cool but i just never kind of 
thought to take the time to listen to it. Um, That's fair. Then I think also, I think we've talked about it. I, I'm, I, I don't say I, I'm, I'm not critical of the power pop genre. Some of, I mean, we covered Fountains of Wayne and they are definitely like pick up the um, mantle for power pop in the nineties. Um, like stuff like that. I mean, there are a lot of great power pop bands that I like. Cheap Trick is probably my favorite of this generation. Totally. Um, and I feel like we should cover them on this podcast at some point. For sure. For yeah. sure. Um, but like, I think we talked about it last week. A lot of power pop can be just kind of boring to me. A little meandery, right? Yeah, yeah. But I thought this album, listening to it, did power pop really, really well. It's really fun, really high energy. Um, I think like the band being really tight actually works really well on this, and oh it does God, kind of yeah. capture like um, a lot of like the fun of like '60s like singles-oriented rock, you know. Absolutely. Uh, completely agreed. And it came at a time where that was uh, not a genre of music that was particularly in the mainstream, 1970. For sure. Yeah. Uh, and something that the lead singer songwriter, Doug Figer, said about this whole movement of uh, younger fans getting really excited about the knack is he said, uh, why can't younger fans who didn't get to experience the Beatles get swept up in something like that? I think the problem was that a lot of fans that had experienced the Beatles felt like there was a disingenuous element to that, which which we will talk about. I, I don't want to bury the lead here, but I do want to talk about these band members <laughs> and sure. who they are. Because uh, I think that the Knack are very much uh, a component of all of the four parts of them put together that make them so so great, especially on this album. So we've got, uh, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Doug Feiger, it might be Feiger. Uh, you know, my apologies if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. He grew up in Michigan, in Oak Park, Michigan. <laughs> his brother, I don't know if you came across this in your research, because yeah. it's amazing. I saw Jeff that. Jeffrey uh, was Jack Kevorkian's lawyer. So there <laughs> you go, a uh, little nugget for, for everybody there. Fun stuff. So he got uh, so several some early success with a band he formed in michigan called sky um which was produced by the rolling stones producer jimmy miller and was recorded in uh, mick jagger's house hmm. yes but that album failed to do anything on the charts and that band broke up but uh, Doug was in LA at the time and decided to try his hand at being like a, uh, you know, Sunset Boulevard roadkill <laughs> songwriter in LA. And there he met uh, Burton Avare on guitars, who's the guitarist, and they formed a songwriting partnership. And he'd also apparently known Bruce Gary for a while, who had been playing in a lot of different bands and sitting in with a lot of people and playing session for years before he joined the Knack. He also uh, comes from a jazz background, which I think is, is cool for the band. And I think that the guitar work on this album is quite stunning. Yep. Uh, I think that something I want to get out right now is we decided not to cover My Sharona, because mm -hmm. mainly because it's so ubiquitous and sort of me going into like shaping this episode, I was kind of like, well, it's actually not as good as some of the other stuff on the album, but listening to the album as a whole, I actually really love my Sharona. Uh, and I think I've gained a new appreciation of it this week. Uh, listening yeah. to it within the context of the record. Exactly. Again. Listening, listening to like a big hit song in context, I, yeah, especially this one. Yeah. Do you hate my Sharona or do you love my Sharona or I... somewhere in the middle? <laughs> I was thinking about it. I'm like, it's not even like a song. It's just like part of culture. It's like the birthday song. It's just like something. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, it's not even, it's just a thing that exists and always has existed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it is, it's, it's, it, tra I think it transcends what it is, which is, it should be said, the number one charting song on the Billboard charts year, year end for 1979. Oh, which yeah. is no no small feat like holy shit and i shit. think it was the at the time it was the fastest charting single in capital records history oh um, my god or like since the beatles or something like that so i mean it yeah. just like rocketed up and stayed there for a long time yeah and yeah i think it stayed uh number 1 for 6 weeks which is yep. which is no slouch no and it is 
a really great song and something about it that I think is worth mentioning is that kind of where you think you know the song, when you think you know where the song is going, which is really like through the first like few verses, then it gets into that instrumental bridge, mm-hmm. which may be considered somewhat wanky, <laughs> but it contains like one of the most concise and like, in my opinion, fucking stunning guitar solos mm-hmm. in the history of rock and roll. And that guitar solo really carries you through and takes you to this whole other place, almost in a way where you almost forget the actual riff of the song until it's repeated at the end. Yeah. Which is really great for a pop song like this. Interesting. So My Sharona was written along with some of the songs we are going to cover today uh, in like a state of like insane mania is how I'm going to describe it. So Doug Figer met this, he was 24, and he met this 17-year-old girl named Sharona Alpern, who they were both dating different people at the time. And within like a period of weeks, he had decided that they were soulmates. (laughs) And she was like, well, I'm not breaking up with my boyfriend. So like, this isn't going to happen. And then he wrote like, basically an entire fucking song cycle about her (laughs) which is both kind of amazing and also like it's so gross and weird oh yeah i mean i think that's the line and that's the line that this whole album is that's the interesting part of this whole album i know like and that's that's the thing about this record is that it had so much criticism levied against it and a lot of praise as well when it came out but there was some really valid criticism about how how sexist it is Mm-hmm. And it is, it's sexist through a really specific lens, and yes. we're definitely going to talk about that today. Yep. So let's talk about the first song we're going to cover. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the album opener, which was my choice for the week. It's called Let Me Out. Let's listen to a little bit of it. Then you'll know really what we're getting into here as well, like stylistically with, with the knack. So here's a little bit of Let Me Out. One, two, three, four. <laughs> exactly a minute into the song which i think is just good uh good smart songwriting and some good production as well yeah this this album was produced by the legendary mike chapman uh with uh his songwriting partner nikki chin wrote all of the big hits for the suite one of our other favorite Pick the Jukebox bands, mm-hmm. uh, who I don't know if we'll ever really cover a full album of the suite because they're such a singles band, but just legendary, really great 70s, uh, crazy bubble glam songs. Uh, and then he also wrote, uh, as long as he wrote for Susie Quattro as well, quite notably. And uh, when he produced this, he was coming off of producing Parallel Lines for Blondie. Mm. Yeah, an album that we have not covered on this podcast because we're not a pair of basic ass bitches. So that's, <laughs> if we cover a Blondie album, we're not going to cover Parallel Lines. We have nothing more to say about it that has no. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and this album was recorded for $18,000 over the course of nine days. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the thing I think it's interesting about these guys is. They were a hard gigging band. They had played, between them forming and them getting signed, they played over 30 shows within the course of like seven months. Mm. Became like real staples of the LA music scene. And 
started getting noticed when people like Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, and Raymond Zarek, producer of the X album, Los Angeles, uh, started sitting in with them on their sets because these Mm. musicians all really enjoyed them. And they, they got signed by Capitol. And apparently like Chapman's sort of his aesthetic for this album is he really just let tape roll. He felt Mm. like he wanted to capture what it was to be a live experience seeing and hearing the knack. So it's like pretty unfettered, although he did really know his way around the board. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, very clean sounding album. It Um, is. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. Yeah. It's, I think that's exactly right. It's like, it's very tight, but Mm -hmm. it's also, I mean, there's not, not a lot of like studio frills. No, there isn't. And this is a start into sort of the contentious nature of this band. The second record, which came out a year later, which was also produced by Chapman, I feel like this is worth noting in contrast to this record. The second record is called uh, But the Little Girls Understand. (laughs) And apparently was all songs written in the same period. Yeah. But... According to certain band members, Chapman was incredibly unfocused for that record. And the record is very unfocused and Mm. is super meandery. And the Knack, the band themselves wanted to release, they wanted all the songs on the first album and wanted it to be a double album. Mm -hmm. Also, such a mistake for this type of music. It's so, this album is 40 minutes long. It does not need to be one minute longer. Like, it kind of like, you know, bursts out with this opening number it hits you in the face and then it just kind of keeps going and then it's done and I well think I, th- I yeah it, you know I uh, yeah I could imagine that impulse I mean you have to remember you know think it's like 1979 this is an era of way overstuffed albums yeah you know that like true so wanky that impulse, wanky, you, wanky yeah for sure so the idea I could imagine I mean inevitably they made the right choice but the impulse to you know have an album filled to the brim with fluff essentially was yeah, with not candy. crazy yeah right <laughs> yeah totally yeah and instead what we get is this album that's super well sequenced and also does have like one or two songs to like calm itself down a little bit yeah while it gets into uh and then gets back sort of revved up again and this this whole album i would say conceptually is sort of like a I would say that it is like an ode to like unrestrained teenage sexuality. Yes. Yeah. And I find that really charming personally, but I don't yeah. have a lot of skin in the game here, I think, as a, <laughs> as a 39-year-old gay guy. And maybe that's yeah. why, because a lot of women, some women certainly will go to bat for this album, but I think a lot of female listeners in particular felt like it was incredibly reductive in the way that it wrote women on the album and this 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 was criticism from 79 like this isn't like this isn't new criticism this has been sort of hanging over this album the entire time you know yeah and like you know speaking for myself something interesting that doug figer figer he said about writing my sharona he said it was written from the perspective of a 14 year old boy yes and he said that for most of the songs yeah this whole album is written from the perspective of a 14 year old boy no question and that may be a cop-out but like it it seems like very it doesn't seem like this is not this album is definitely misogynistic but it's not adult misogyny it's so clearly the misogyny the unique misogyny of a teenage boy yeah i think that that's a good uh thing to say about it and i think why there's elements to it that there's like a bit of a snotty charm to right. it right snotty for sure yeah uh, you know and and like I imprecise think- and unknowledgeable like yes. you know the idea of um you know a lot of the multiple songs like she's so selfish and frustrated like these it's this frustration at like girls being a cock tease. Yes. You know, that only teenage boys and like incels think that way. Yeah. You know, like hopefully, hopefully you grow out of this. <laughs> yeah. 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 Which, yeah. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not you. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully you, Kyle, grow out of yeah. space. Um, but I do think that something that didn't do them any favors is that they were in a place for whatever reason, I would argue because they themselves were somewhat immature, that they were not able to defend their lyrics Mm. to the place where we are currently defending them. 
Mm. And I think that therein lies the problem. And mm. it gets into some of the controversy, This the weird controversy surrounding this band. It, it sort of started with the fact that they signed a Capitol Records. Capitol famously is the U.S. imprint for the Beatles. This was a really intentional move by the Knack. They were big Beatles fans. And then the Capitol marketing people decided to market them in a way where they uh, somewhat resemble the Beatles. Although it's not really... It seems very... It's very loose. loose. Yeah, Yeah. this this is not... So, you know, there's a lot of criticism against, like, the album art looking too much like the album art for Meet the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it resembles it, but I, I don't feel like it's, it's yeah. like a shot-for-shot shot recreation. And the, the font that's used for the album title, Get the Knack, is indeed the same font that's used for the larger font for Meet the Beatles. However... Meet the Beatles uh, plays with its fonts and uses different colors on its cover. And I actually brought both albums out yesterday just to do a comparison, just to be like, what's going on here? And to be honest, I feel like it's a really grasping at kind of loose arguments here. Yeah. It's um, just a photo of the band. <laughs> yeah. It's a photo of the band in black and white smiling. Like, yeah. And that like, God forbid. And then, and then the back of the album is a shot that totally resembles a shot from Hard Day's Night, but once again feels like homage, and it's not like a it's not like a total recreation, either. Uh, how, however, something that's I think really fun and I think very loving is it was contractually obligated by the band that the album have the old school rainbow around the Capitol Records logo that was used in the '60s. Oh, cool! And then was not used. At a, this entire logo that was on here was from the 60s and had not been used for like 10 years in Capitol Records history. Hmm. So that's, I think that's more fun than anything. Like, yeah, that's a cool, like, that's a cool homage. Like, yeah, if I totally. was in their shoes, I could see myself doing something like that. Yeah, I think that's all really fun. And I think it's all super, super loving. Uh, but something definitely happened with them where they had a snottiness to them. And this did come across for sure in, you know, this few interviews that I saw where they didn't defend themselves very well against sort of this flack, against this backlash. It sort of made people more angry. Uh, It was sort of a a problem for them. Uh, Although, you know, I watched an interview with them that was from Australian TV from this era where this album came out. And they do seem really earnest. And the main thing I took away from that interview was that they really just enjoyed playing rock and roll for people and they thought it was a lot of fun and there's nothing really wrong with that no no and i get the sense that a lot of the flack we're talking about that now like i think a lot of that i got the sense that it came from other bands in the scene being jealous in a in a sense because and Mm. i get it and i totally get it and i understand that feeling you know if you think, if you look at the next career, they kind of like, you know, if, if there was like a seminar on like how to make it in the music business, yes. like they followed that template to a T. They gigged a lot. They got in front of industry people. The industry marketed them extremely heavily. And then they had a massive hit. Yeah. Like, and then and they recorded and, a, a hot shit album and they're good songwriters. Like God forbid. Exactly. Exactly. You know? <laughs> but, but that's not, people don't, that's not what they were pissed about. I think, and that's why it seems like a lot of the criticism like of being derivative of the Beatles or I think people also are like, how dare you compare yourselves to the Beatles? That's the whole, you know. Um, yeah, which like, is the- raucest, yeah, which, which yeah. we are not on this right. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah, exactly. I think that all plays into, I think that that that's kind of this loose sense that I, I definitely felt that a lot of the criticism was like, we're jealous of this band being so massive and we're just going to take whatever shots we can take. Yeah, absolutely. And then there was, you know, it culminated in an entire, like, anti knack movement. Yeah. Which was titled Nuke the Knack. With a K. With a K, yeah, very important. Which was headed by this San Francisco artist named Hugh Brown, who designed an album cover for The Clash. 
and just felt that the knack were so highly manufactured right. that he needed to manufacture that he needed to manufacture buttons and shirts to make. <laughs> yeah. But in the meantime, you know, the kids really like this album. This album sold super, super well. Just before we leave it behind, this song "Let Me Out" was written to be a set opener. They felt mm-hmm. they needed a strong set opener. Uh, they felt they needed some sort of consensus about the band as well, which they uh, definitely get with this, and is a really great anthem for the way we're all feeling, being stuck inside. <laughs> uh, Very true. Listen to it this week. And there is a line that I think is interesting within the context of the larger sense of the record. Uh, Let me out. Uh, she don't understand because I'm living for the band which I think is like, oh, you're being bound by this by this woman in your life and really just want to run around with your rock and roll soulmates. Well, <laughs> you can't have it both ways, buddy. Because <laughs> then the rest of this album is about how hard it is to <laughs> find and date women. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which is a good uh, uh, way to uh, get into your song, Ot- Otara. Yeah, really fun song. Let's, should let's we listen, listen to, to some of it. Yeah, totally. yeah. let's do it. so sweet yeah so why why do you choose this one yeah i think this is a really fun song probably an underrated song on the album Mm -hmm. um i picked this song i think because you know a lot of i think when when you listen to this album and you hear and people talk about the 60s influence maybe like the jangly you know birds you know you know uh beatles kind of influence um but I just like that on this album, the like pre-Beatles rock and roll sound, I think comes through really cool and really nicely. Like I listen to this and I hear like a Dion or like a Del yep. Shannon and that, I love that stuff. And mm-hmm. that's like just a really cool modernization of that sound. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all of those tropes just sort of wound up a little tighter i feel yes totally Uh, you know um and that was something that i think is correct uh that was a lot of criticism about this album is they said it was a new wave interpretation of old rock and roll tropes oh how how horrible i know exactly god (laughs) forbid oh aka like like our favorite thing like (laughs) all our favorite things fucking put together yeah and they and they recorded a very good cover of uh buddy holly's heartbeat exactly yeah i'm like that stuff is such a cool i mean there's a lot wrapped up in here you know and it's clearly not there's no one influence there 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 clearly are like there's a whole group of influences floating around in their heads and it kind of comes together really nicely on this album yeah yeah something that i would say on the two uh, songs that we've covered so far and also on good girls don't which is our final song we're going to talk about is that I think that what makes the knack work and what you're talking about is sort of that like good power poppy tight songwriting vocals guitars and bass and then I would argue that Bruce Gary is like very influenced specifically by Keith Moon as a a drummer kind of all over the place and it gives these songs kind of this wild amount of expanse that mm. I think otherwise would maybe make them a little more in that genre of like that kind of like milk toasty safe power pop that we're not as into. Yeah. But I think that he kind of like carries the entire record 
forward in a really extreme way. Yeah, it um, gives it, it definitely, the drums help contribute to like the fun, frenetic energy of the album. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that sort of is like Otara. It's like, you know, it sort of just has like this massive, like, there's this massive kind of underlying drum rumble through the entire thing. Sure. That I think, you know, and, and the, the lyric from this song that I really like is the agony and the ecstasy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. feels like out. being a fucking teenager. You know? Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting. It's, um, there's, a, there's definitely a, an ugliness to all of this that is somewhat similar to like when we covered Pinkerton. Mm, right. Right. Like there's sort of a, this like kind of male, like romantic heartbreak, loneliness, ugliness to it. That is really written from a place of not complete self-awareness. Yes. But, but I think a place that we can all identify with. Yeah. I mean, this is like a snottier, um, uh, you know, maybe a less mature, like, um, lyrical uh, quality to this record than Pinkerton, but I think it comes from the, like, uh, like, grossly sincere, like, yeah. in, the, in the best sense, but, like, you know, nothing, not there's anything wrong with that in and of itself, but, like, no. super sincere, super direct, zero irony. I think, yeah, that's, that's definitely true of both those albums. So, Another thing that happened in one of the interviews I watched with these guys that I think is a real, you know, look inside of Doug's brain is the interviewer was like, I heard you're playing another record. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to go in and record it after we're done this tour. And he was like, well, you know, are you planning on changing your sound? And he was like, no, it's going to be more of the same, more of the knack. And then he like got a little grin on his face and he was like, just as filthy. (laughs) And I I think that that's important because I think that there is a self-aware element that they were getting away with something with this album. This was this album for teenagers that is really for the time blatantly sexual. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, like, and I think, you know, as our resident bubblegum connoisseur, this mm-hmm. seems like in the same tradition, if not like, you know, but like maybe like one generation above, like if bubblegum is like 12 year old music, this is for like 14 year olds, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, like, yeah, totally. 14 uh, year olds that still need the hooks to really stick in their heads. The yeah, but like, yeah. The, you know, he, he's going to say, like on this album, he doesn't pull punches. Like on the next song we're going to cover, he talks about wanting a girl to literally sit on his face. So, yeah, sit uh, on his face so much yeah, yeah, that yeah. it hurts. Yeah, yeah. That the longing for it hurts. Yeah. And that the actual fi- action of the face sitting hurts as well. Yeah, I imagine it's um, it's like a not, uh, you know, I'd like to imagine it's not a sexual longing. It's just like he's on a chair and she's sitting on his face, like eating dinner, like fully clothed with pants on and everything. I think it's still a sexual longing, even <laughs> yeah. if that is no. the scenario. <laughs> no, I, I can still, I can fantasize about the non-sexual face sitting. Of course you can, you know, mm-hmm. at Kick the Jukebox Incorporated, we fantasize about whatever we want, always, Amen. for sure. Amen. Yeah, so <laughs> totally. So the last song we're going to cover, we we already started started talking about it is Good Girls Don't. Those were the two singles from this record, My Sharona being the first, uh Good Girls Don't being the second from this album. Let's listen to a little bit of it and then we'll talk a little more of uh, about, you know, this this song which I think is like the best. Yep. Adolescent dream, schoolboy stuff, a sticky sweet romance. And she makes you wanna scream, wishing you could get inside her pants. So you fantasize away while you're squeezing her. You thought you heard her saying, Good girls don't. Call her on the phone 
that she hates And she says she's all alone And her parents won't be coming home till late Yeah, the song um, rules. <laughs> it's great. Uh, it's very good. So this song, uh, first of all, very important. I sang this once for karaoke. Ooh. And there was a man hitting on me uh, who took me home that night, and then we dated for uh, like five, six months. So well, Michelle accomplished happened. this song. Yep, 2010, baby. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, Mission Accomplished. He told me later that it wasn't the actual song. It's how excited I was to be singing the song. Oh, so that makes sense. That makes sense. Totally. Um, The other thing about this guy is in another review I read this album, someone was like that using the harmonica at the beginning resembles the opening harmonica from the, the Beatles song Should Have Known Better. And I think that okay. this is a slew of music critics from the late 70s who are just way too far up the Beatles' asses. Yeah, like give me a fucking break. Like, you can't use a harmonica to open a song? I mean, <laughs> once I think that's the thing of, like, once you make the Beatles comparison with music critics, I think not anymore, but, like, for a long time, if you even fucking try to... Well, if you remember, like... Um, that there was that R&B singer Trent, Terrence Trent Darby sure. from like the he he said his album was better than the Beatles. Probably he was just talking shit. Yeah, it, it ruined his career. Yes. Like you know, like you you just you, like if there was a time where if you even have the slightest suggestion, it just fucked you. But it's all criticism and it's all marketing spin because there are other bands and people from this era that I think are the inheritors of the Beatles sound and did what the Beatles were doing and had huge amounts of success and were not, didn't get any flack for it. The main person who uh, I'd like to bring up in this argument is Jeff Lynne and his electrical light orchestra. (laughs) Who I think that all the stuff that they did from the early seventies into the late seventies. And Lynne has even said this, and this is before he started working with, with the Beatles themselves, which he did as he worked with all of the surviving Beatles into the 80s, is he said that he was really attempting to take what the Beatles had done and bring it into uh, a new decade. And mm-hmm. I think he succeeded. And I, I love those albums very much. And I think Electric Light Orchestra is great. And he never received any of this like harsh, angry, you know, this is like <laughs> so much scorn. Um, right. Uh, yeah, so in the meantime, though, this song totally fucking rules. This is definitely yep. the song that I think just captures that kind of adolescent angst in the most like pure sense. Right. Where you want to get laid so much that you're just going to like literally explode from the inside out. I feel this. <laughs> explode in every way. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. every which way. And I guess that's a universal feeling, you know, to backtrack on what I said earlier about not having any skin in the game. Like, I guess when I got into this album in my early 20s, I could totally identify and empathize, despite the <laughs> fact that the gender that these all these songs are about was not my preferred one. I guess that might be why I like this album so much. Yeah. And I mean, like, um, you know, it's also a song about t- teenagers fantasizing about a girl. Like, I mm. mean... You know, it doesn't get more, like, teen, you know-esque than that. Yeah, that's totally fair. That's, <laughs> it really, it really doesn't. Um you do more fantasizing than actually doing of anything. Yes, unless you're, like, really popular. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, you do more fantasizing, that's right, you do more fantasizing than anything. And that is sort of what all, what all the songs on this record are, are about. I think that maybe sort of this conversation between the two of us has led me to believe that I think one of the things that made people so freaked out about this record is how frank it was. Yeah. That, you know, we still have trouble acknowledging that teenagers have uh, sexual feelings and identities. And, and yeah. 
and that to write an album that's so blatant about it, I, I think a lot of people found quite threatening at the time and still do. Yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, even now I think people are still hung up about like teen sexuality, but like this is pre-PMRC. This is pre- like, you know, labeling of albums. This is like, yes. you know, parents were, like, this was, this was an era where, like, you know, parents, re even more so than today, way, way more so than today, were, like, very concerned that what their kids were listening to would affect the way they behaved and, you know, lead them down the path to depravity, you know? Yeah, and some uh, more feminist arguments against this album specifically say young people are influenced by the sort of media that they're consuming, mm -hmm. which I personally feel has been proven to be mainly a garbage argument as long mm -hmm. as you're training uh, your populace to be uh, media literate. But right. that's sort of a whole other discussion about media literacy within American society and how I don't feel it is an artist's responsibility to mm -hmm. be educators uh, when it comes to fun, sexy pop music, you right. know, personally. But that these guys had a responsibility, that was an argument, to be writing from a, a more equalized perspective. Uh -huh. And... I would argue that these are four totally dopey, very charming, right. but dopey white dudes right. in their early 20s writing this mm -hmm. album, being produced by a dopey white dude who is a really yeah. brilliant dopey white dude, but is right. totally, was a dopey white dude. I mean, you know, this is the dude who wrote Teenage Rampage, like, you know, right. uh, Mike Chapman. So it's like, these guys, there was no one in the room maybe to help them get a different perspective. And that's why it's True. really important to have a lot of different people creating and contributing to art. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's interesting because this album is from 79. Uh, it hasn't aged the best for sure. Yep. But also at the time, it does represent an awakening in criticism and in what we needed from our pop artists where more people were saying, hey, we need to really look at what, what's going on with this album that's specifically marketed towards teenagers that is begging for a girl to sit on their face and <laughs> calling girls selfish because they don't want to go out with, go right. out with you know, the protagonist of the record, that kind of stuff. And, and really, if this album had come out in 73 or 72, just a few years earlier, I would argue there would have been none of that criticism. We just wouldn't have heard it. This would have just been like, yeah, this is a great power pop, big fun record. And you know what? A lot of much more misogynistic shit music came out right after this, too. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, this this in comparison to a lot of like hair metal that came out. Right. Is very tame. Well, I yeah. think that's what kind of distorted it is when back then you think about where a lot of the um, like, of course, there was like a lot of like legitimate like criticism on the left. But the loudest voice for censorship at the time was the the right of or the like you know country club right you know mm -hmm, of being mm -hmm. like you know decency and like the eisenhower republicans being like stop talking like this so when mm -hmm. that's the voice calling for censorship it drowns out the other people who are calling for not necessarily censorship but for um like who are criticizing the lyrical content it all gets wrapped up and then it's easy to bunch them all together when there are a lot of people making different arguments criticizing the same thing definitely i think that that's really well put and that sort of segues into just like you know bigger thoughts about cancel culture in general and how we're all allowed to be angry about certain things that happen culturally or certain people culturally who've been proven to be not good guys, mm -hmm. but that something that we haven't been trained at as a society is really that we all come from these things from our own perspective and from our own sense of place of privilege. Yep. And this is like, this podcast about this album is from our unique perspective. Mm. You know, I would say that some you know we talk about this a lot on the podcast that this is sort of um representative of it's an expiration of taste and it's a bit of like a queering of music history mm -hmm. you know i would argue for this podcast but 
Uh, I certainly just want to say for the record that my opinion about liking this record is not the be all and end all. And I don't think it should be the end of the conversation about it. And I think that it's really complex. I'd like to hear from more different types of people about how they feel about the lyrics on Get the Knack. Because yeah. I think it's it's 2020 and it's really important to talk about it right now. How do you <laughs> feel about Get the Knack? Yes. Um, and, you know, just one more thing about cancel culture, you know, as much as we, you know, s- sometimes cancel culture can be frustrating, but some sometimes, you know, it can be legitimate. And, but whatever you think about cancel culture, it wasn't invented in 2016 or 2017 or whatever. Yeah. You know, think about when this album came out. First of all, you could argue that the knack got canceled. You could argue that this album got them canceled. It was and certainly you, a component of it, for sure. Yeah. And then also you think about, you know, Disco Demolition Day happened this same year, you know, things were getting like, you know, 1980, the discos got closed. They, disco got canceled. All right. Yeah. So by a bunch of like fucking white ass, like exactly breathers. Right. Want to go to a club and dance to some gay ass music. Exactly. So (laughs) it doesn't matter where it's coming from. Cancel culture was always there. It'll always be there. It it can be frustrating a lot of times, but Hey, it's just, I think it's just part of human nature. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, it it definitely was a component in, in why the knack just never achieved this success ever again from this first record they got canceled baby they they did they they, it's several different components one is that they were privy to being mainly sort of a flavor of the week of a bunch of kids Mm -hmm. and you know um good girls don't did chart at number it reached number six on the charts which is not bad that's a hit that's a a hit. hit But by the time Good Girls Don't came out, the Knack were already kind of segueing out of being popular. They, right. they, they burned the candle real fast. Right. And then uh, there was the, the criticism that sort of turned off a lot more uh, uh, like older adult fans sort of, you know, were kind of tired of them, even though this album certainly did have fans that really liked it who were older than 14 years old, mm-hmm. for sure. And then they released a album that was definitely meandery, which mm-hmm. didn't work too well for them. Uh, and then I think that they just suffered from like major burnout uh, and they broke up after their third album and then had like several reformations over the years before, unfortunately, uh, and, and some of their later albums are quite good as well, but um, Doug Figer, uh passed away of brain cancer, um, unfortunately. He... To end his story, he did not end up with Sharona Alpern, although they dated for three years because I think she was like, she liked him. She did genuinely like him, but I think she was like, Jesus Christ, this guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. a fucking album all about me. Like, I'm going to yeah. date this guy. <laughs> like, right. That would just be, that'd be too much. I mean, that's insane. Like, I, I really do feel like, and I don't think that she would say this. She, appar- she apparently had really nothing but nice things to say about him. But I really feel like he badgered her into mm-hmm. dating him by like writing an entire concept record around her. If you want to see what he was so obsessed with, look up the cover for the My Sharona single, which features Sharona holding uh, the Nax album cover in like this beautiful like white tank top, like leaning back, showing off her like statuesque figure. Yeah, you see her <laughs> boobs. Yeah, <laughs> and apparently like that was just how she dressed. She was a rock and roller. She loved it. But they did not end up together. But they stayed very, very good friends. They married other people. He uh, unfortunately passed away of brain cancer, and she was friends with him till the end. And apparently, like a whole bunch of music you know, people, uh, you know, visited him until his last days. And she felt it was a fitting end to someone who had been like fairly disrespected. Yep. You know, and and, like, just to put a little button on it, just from like two years before he died, I read this article, the knack, a version of the knack was touring through Phoenix to play. And the, the dude who wrote the, the article that was the interview with Doug apparently had just written mean shit about the knack for like 20 years wanted to interview doug and doug apparently started the interview by being like i don't really know why you want to interview me you clearly don't like me or my music and i actually have no understanding as of why (laughs) like Mm -hmm. he was like being really amical about it and this guy wrote in the article 
And this is like so long after all that flack had died down. Like this is like, it was like from 99 or 2000. Uh, He writes, um, I loved the knack too when I was 12 and I didn't know any better. How dismissive is of that of young taste and of really great rock and roll. So, you know, I love the knack and I don't know any better. I'm sorry. Well, you know what? We'll have to get that writer from Phoenix to come on here and defend himself. Yeah, we'll have to have like a WWF style Royal Rumble, I think. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Well, thanks for delving into that one with me. It was really fun for me. Yes, that was really fun. Yeah, awesome. (laughs) So thank you everybody for listening to Kick the Jukebox. We do, as you can tell, an album of the week Every week, you can follow us on social media. You can suggest albums for us to do. We're mainly at Kick the Jukebox on Instagram. We're at, I think, KTJB Pod on uh, Twitter. And you can find us at kickthejukebox.com as well. If you want to give us some cashola for our hard, you know, hard research and joy we put into this podcast, my Venmo is at Louis4711. Kyle. Your Venmo is at Kyle-Gordon-2. Yes. I know it now because I've been editing these episodes and I have it like memorized now. Yeah, uh, yeah and we'll see you uh, in another week. We'll see you around like a record. I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. Goodbye. Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kick it a rhyme. Talking about music all the time.